Hello, and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and I'm really glad that you're listening in. This is episode two in my series dealing with the fascinating relationship between faith and self-deception. In the previous episode, I looked at some general ideas around self-deception, and those ideas may have made you nervous, uh, in which case you can just wait a little, because <laughs> because it's just going to get worse, uh, or, or, or better, I'm not sure. As you will have realized, I haven't really had a chance to fully unpack the relationship between self-deception and faith just yet, but I am going to get there. Before the series is done, you should have a pretty good idea of how it works or doesn't, or does, depending on on how you, how unself-deceived you are. Keeping in mind the, the paradox of self-deception, where the self is both the deceiver and the deceived, I figured it's a good idea to, to look at nine qualities of self-deception, nine categories of self-deception. Uh, once we have a sense of these qualities, we may have a better sense of how to frame a theological response to the issue of self-deception. So the first quality of self-deception is self-inflation, namely a fixed sense of self-image. This is the main thing that in fact sustains self-deception and I'm going to have uh, some more to say about it even in the, the next episode. Whether we want to admit it or not, we all want to hold a particular opinion of ourselves, whether positive or negative. The point is that we want to hold that opinion of ourselves as a kind of stable thing that we can trust, even if it's not really true. And we all have a tendency to overinflate our sense of self or self-importance. I think it's not so much necessarily, again, people with, say, what is problematically called lower self-esteem. People with lower self-esteem tend to have a lower view of themselves, but the self remains at the center of their picture of the world. And that's precisely where the problem comes comes in. The result of this tendency to place the self at the center of our picture of the world is that we will tend to hold views, even incorrect views, simply because they help us to maintain the picture of ourselves that we have, or and our reality as an extension of ourselves. And then, of course, by implication, we would then have some sense that our perception of reality is also, in fact, stable and to be trusted. At one time, I had the totally awkward and difficult experience of working with a total narcissist. And I don't mean this as a joke. I really had this experience. And it confirmed the findings of a study that indicated that narcissists are especially confident when it comes to believing the truth of their assertions. I mean, imagine having a narcissist to say, I don't know, hypothetically, the president of your country, spouting lies left, right and center without for a moment wondering if he's saying anything true. I mean, this could be a total disaster. It could lead to something like a post-truth culture. I mean, what do you do then? Gosh, it would just be awful. Anyway, in theological debate, narcissism is particularly dangerous because the words of the speaker or preacher or evangelist are then going to be in some sense taken, especially by that person, but possibly by his or her followers, probably his in Christian culture, uh, to be the equivalent of God's words. And so if you disagree, you're not going to just be disagreeing with a person, you're going to be disagreeing with God. And this leads to heresy hunts and farewell Rob Bell tweets and all other kinds of nastiness. But before any of us get onto a judgy high horse, it's also good to remember that 
we're all, every single one of us, prone to being self-deceived in some way at some point. And maybe we're deceiving ourselves right now about something. That said, statistically, men do tend to be slightly more prone to risk on the basis of certainty that shouldn't be there. The payoffs to this could be pretty huge, but obviously then the, the losses will also be bigger. However, if you're then biased against men and think that women are automatically better than men, then what I've just said about men will just reinforce your bias, which is going to then confirm your self-deception on other matters. And speaking of reinforcing your bias, the easiest way to reinforce a bias is through what is known as the derogation of others. If you want to make sure that you're in the right, especially when there's a chance that you're not, you need to invent yourselves an enemy. Farewell Rob Bell tweets are an example of this. But belittling and denigrating the human being that sent out this tweet could also be an example of this. I planted that there, by the way, just to keep your, <laughs> your biases in check. And maybe that made you uncomfortable. I'm sorry about that. The derogation of others just happens to be the second quality of self-deception. This is the obvious flip side of the first quality, of, namely self-inflation. It's easier to feel secure and self-assured when the other has been turned into an enemy of some kind, or at least as someone lesser than you. It's important to recognize that this would have nothing to do with the other being actually worse than you. The idea is to maintain the fiction that you are better than they are. I've, I've often pointed out to people that it's, it's remarkable how, how two-dimensional and flat our enemies are, while we are multifaceted and complex and have complex motivations. It's, a, it's always a good indication of, of how much you hate someone um, to, to notice how simple-minded they seem to you. <laughs> An indication of, of where the derogation of others is at play is to look at any form of argumentation that is rooted in ad hominems. This would be a pretty good sign of this self-deceptive strategy. I noticed uh, in the previous American election how powerfully this was used. Uh, instead of dealing with actual policies and arguments, you just attack people. Instead of um, defeating them with reason, you attack them. Another example of this invention of the enemy is, is so-called ultra-crepidarianism, which, which refers to speaking against something on the basis of your own ignorance. Uh, simply because you're against them. Ultra-crepidarians, I love that word, it's just ludicrously long. Ultra-crepidarians want to be right for the sake of being right, which really amounts to being wrong for the sake of being right, which is really silly. Then, self-deception is marked by a third quality, clear in-group slash out-group associations. This is linked, obviously, with the derogation of others. The fact is, People tend to pick groups to belong to. It's part of our nature, because we are mimetic beings, always desiring the desires of others. The selection of the group may actually be totally arbitrary, the result of the strong magnetic pull of shared desires, but it is nonetheless what creates a strong sense of loyalty. You can see how this plays out on, say, reality shows like Survivor or the famous Stanford prison experiment or sports team supporters, various ideological prejudices reflect this third quality of self-deception. On the far right, you find things like racism and sexism, uh, for example. On the far left, you find an irrational use of compassion to justify the victimizing 
of victimizers, which is like being cruel to, towards racist and sexist, um, which, you know, they're, they're both problematic postures, obviously. So one of the things you notice with, with self-deception is that it exposes the fact that hypocrisy is, in a way, part of the human pathology. It's how, how it's something we gravitate towards pretty quickly. Actually, moral hypocrisy happens to be the fourth characteristic of self-deception. Self-deception means that we tend to forgive ourselves more quickly than we forgive others of the very same crime. If you stole something when you were a kid, it's forgiven, but if someone else steals from you, they deserve prison, that sort of thing. Which reminds me of that Groucho Marx quip, which I really love, the secret to, of life is honesty and fair dealing. If you can fake that, you've got it made. The fifth characteristic of self-deception is the bias of power, which leads to severe empathy failure. The self-deceived tend to have a warped sense of power. In fact, Robert Trivers notes that power corrupts mental processes almost at once, which I think is really interesting. It's like becoming president makes you an idiot, which is symbolized quite quite beautifully by um, Douglas Adams's metaphor that if to be a politician, you have to have half your brain removed. This is obviously linked to narcissism. The, the research shows that people with a strong bent towards being empathetic tend to also be more realistic. Maybe that's not what you were expecting, but it, it does actually make sense. However, that said, empathy itself also needs to be kept in check because it also has a dark side, which we would do well to notice, especially when thinking about the sixth characteristic of self-deception, which is the illusion of control. Empathy does, weirdly enough, uh, participate in that. Self-deception often involves a sense of being in more control than we really are. When people are anxious, they tend to see patterns even in random data. When I listen to the absolutism of fundamentalists, whether they're Christians, Muslims, atheists, etc., who don't accept doubt, ambiguity, and so on, I get the sense that there's actually a lot more anxiety there than actual faith. And maybe that, by the way, this is a clue, that maybe faith is the thing that relaxes us to be open to other perspectives, other ways of seeing. At that point, uh, if there is sort of so much anxiety, it has less to do with God, I think, than it has to do with feeling like the world is predictable enough that we can cope with it. I think that's why uh, people try and control things. It's, it's actually a form of coping. So yes, it turns out that the illusion of control is observed in illusionary pattern recognition. Try arguing with someone who holds rigidly to a doctrine. They'll get upset and accuse you of heresy even if your argument is more rational than theirs is, well, ad hominems become the go-to persuasive mode when our reason fails us. So you see, this comes back. I mean, all, all these characteristics of self-deception are obviously intertwined. Which brings me to characteristic number seven, which is false personal narratives. I've already mentioned this a bit. We, we usually create a false narrative about our own personal growth, often viewing the new me as somehow being better than the old me. I think this is where chronological snobbery comes from. Just because it's newer doesn't mean it's better, but it's difficult to actually see this. 
There's a kind of forgetting at work here, which happens to be the eighth characteristic of self-deception. I've dealt with student plagiarism cases, when, say, the student has clearly plagiarized, but then they have been totally horrified when there's been any insinuation that they have plagiarized. It's possible that they're lying. Uh, that's, that's happened a few times, but it's sometimes quite amazing that they, they forget that they copied someone else's work. The last quality of self-deception is anti-evidentialism. Turns out that supposedly neutral facts tend to kick our biases into gear. We tend to accept only those truths that are familiar, even if they've been refuted. I'll say more about familiarity in the next episode. As should be pretty clear by now, it's very possible that these things are at the root of a lot of people's faith. I have no doubt that there are many people whose so-called authentic Christianity is entirely rooted in self-deception. Again, there's the possibility that they've been self, self-deceived self into believing things that are true. Um, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe, for instance, people have gone around refusing to question their own assumptions and beliefs because that would create enormous discomfort within their faith community. So the faith community would, or the in-group, would produce a kind of social pressure. Maybe others have adopted something of a narcissistic faith or a tribal kind of faith that runs to the kind of mode of creating enemies. But the thing that I find astonishing is that Christianity offers four core ethical principles that are really profoundly antithetical to all forms of self-deception. I have no doubt that there are other ethical or religious systems that offer their own antidotes to self-deception, but obviously my focus is on Christian theology here. The first theological antidote to self-deception is the Christian tradition's celebration of humility. This is a virtue that Nietzsche found deplorable, and obviously, like any virtue, you can take it too far, but it's an amazing virtue. It's an antidote specifically to self-inflation, narcissism, and the bias of power, and then also the illusion of control. So four of the qualities I mentioned already are actually dealt with by this one virtue. There are different kinds of humility that have always existed in various cultures across history, especially the humility known as realism, which is the idea that we should be humble in the face of what is obviously greater than we are. But historically speaking, this is a really fascinating thing. Christianity introduces a totally new kind of humility. When you survey all the texts that we have access to, we find that the first text to mention this kind of humility is Philippians 2. It's the idea that the genuinely great should lower themselves. So they lower, in fact, it's the idea that humility is only really possible if you're great. So that's the way we understand it now. But that idea is fundamentally from Christian theology and Christian thinking. So if you check out Philippians 2, you can actually see how that plays out in this idea of, of um, Christ's kenosis, uh, often mispronounced kenosis. Um, I would recommend John Dixon's book, Humilitas, for some insights on this. I think it's really interesting, but you can probably just check out a few YouTube clips or whatever out there. So Christianity suggests this bizarre idea, which is that God is not power hungry. He empties himself, submits himself to the very reality that he has created. 
This is not because he is powerless, but precisely because he isn't. This divine non-power, quintessentially represented by the death of, of Jesus on the cross, evokes empathy, which, as I said, is one of the tools that we have against self-deception. So not only is there a kind of theological dimension here, but also a psychological dimension. Sometimes how a doctrine or event makes us feel may have just as much importance as what the doctrine itself is. Chesterton says really amazing things on the topic of humility, and I could probably expand this forever, but I'm just going to share two quotes because they're just so great. The first one is this. The most brilliant exponent of the egoistic school, Nietzsche, with deadly and honorable logic, admitted that the philosophy of self-satisfaction led to looking down upon the weak, the cowardly, and the ignorant. Looking down on things may be a delightful experience, only there is nothing from a mountain to a cabbage that is really seen when it is seen from a balloon. The philosopher of the ego sees everything, no doubt, from a high and rarefied heaven, only he sees everything foreshortened and deformed. Isn't that great? And then the second thing from Chesterton is this, on directly on humility. Humility is said both by its upholders and opponents to be the peculiar growth of Christianity. The real and obvious reason for this is often missed. The pagans insisted upon self-assertion because it was the essence of their creed that the gods, though strong and just, were mystic, capricious, and even indifferent. But the essence of Christianity was, in a literal sense, the New Testament, a covenant with God which opened to men a clear deliverance. They thought themselves secure. They claimed palaces of pearl and silver under the oath and seal of the Omnipotent. They believed themselves rich with an irrevocable benediction which set them above the stars, and immediately they discovered humility. It was only another example of the same immutable paradox. It is always the secure who are humble. Isn't that an amazing insight? It is always the secure who are humble. The second theological antidote to self-deception is the love of the enemy, which is offered against the derogation of others and in-group slash out-group association. So it deals specifically with two of the qualities that I mentioned above. So, so far we've already, if I'm, I'm adding up correctly, dealt with six of the nine qualities of self-deception through two of uh, two Christian virtues. The idea here, uh, the, the idea of the love of enemy, is to always think of others as better than yourself. That is, to decentralize your own locus of power. Obviously, this is related to the first virtue, which I've already mentioned. Look after the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, etc. Paul's claim that there is neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. You could even push that further. There is neither Christian nor non-Christian, neither gay nor straight, and so on. The purpose is not to say that anything goes or that everyone is right about everything, but that we need to seriously consider the perspective of others as having validity, at least as much validity as our own. Only in dialogue can we arrive at a more holistic and wholesome view of things. The third theological antidote to self-deception is confession. This comes from the tradition. The Orthodox and Catholic traditions are definitely better at this than Protestants, but the gist is this, speak what you think. This is free speech right here. 
Again, it's not that everything you say is going to be right, but in confession, you have the opportunity to be corrected, to set, be set on the right path. This is an antidote to moral hypocrisy, false personal narratives, and the domination of the unconscious, which I've referred to as forgetting. So this deals with three um, of the nine qualities of self-deception that I mentioned earlier. I think this is really amazing. Christian tradition has a history of asking people to call a spade a spade. When something leads to degeneration, let's point it out. Not because we're being arrogant or morally superior, but because we're being humble enough to notice where we might need to comply with natural law. It's significant for me that Jesus spoke very strongly against hypocrisy. Take the plank out of your own eye before you take the splinter from your brother's eye. The idea is really simple, but very effective. Then, the fourth and final theological antidote to self-deception is collective witness. Collective witness is offered as an antidote to the misapprehension of reality caused by anti-evidentialism. This is somewhat double-edged, I realize, because it uses the group, in a way, to undermine in-group bias. But the gist of it is that we need to pay close attention to the witness of others so as not to fall into a kind of solipsistic way of seeing. The entire construction of the Bible is built upon this idea of multiple witnesses, which I think is one of the reasons why the Bible is so interesting and so good as a, as a historical document, as a, a document of human uh, spiritual exploration. You find there, for instance, that the prophets update and correct what happened previously. And Jesus does the same when he, he kind of checks and tests the whole of, of the kind of uh, historical canon. I know that a huge part of Christendom seems to be opposed to evidence. There certainly needs to be an awareness of the limits of evidence in terms of having existential re relevance. I mean, maybe you know what's happening historically, but you haven't figured out how to actually live. But the fact is, Christianity itself is fundamentally historical. Um, I, I know that in, in Mercia Eliad's work, there, there's this claim that Christianity introduced the historical dimension to religious faith. Um, it's rooted in events. It has a, a historical awareness. And I think this doesn't mean that we should all become narrow-minded empiricists, but that we should take seriously the evidence before us. Of course, this doesn't solve the whole question of the relationship between faith and self-deception, but what I've done at least here is point out that, that Christian faith, which reveals to us what people are open to, faith always re reveals what people are open to, but Christian faith is this idea that is directed to, towards specific virtues. And certainly, uh, four of the virtues that I, I've highlight, highlighted deal directly with self-deception and trying to overcome self-deception. So I really hope this has uh, been intriguing and helpful to you. In the next episode, I'm going to finish off by looking at five hermeneutical force fields, just because I like the word force fields and the word hermeneutical. Uh, but it's going to be really interesting because it continues some of the discussion of how self-deception might be at play within faith. So in a way, I've presented the antidote and I'm going to present a few more problems. I hope you join me for that. It's going to be interesting. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. You can support this podcast, of course, on uh, my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Until next time, cheers, everyone.